chapter 3, beginning at the first verse, and can be found on page 5 of the Bibles. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and I will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, Alan, thank you very much for those prayers and uh, Val for that reading as well. I'd love you to have Genesis chapter 3 open in front of you, page 5. Um, it sounds like a rather sort of stark, and if you're not used to, to sort of biblical literature, I, I, I guess um, plainly odd language. This, this sort of 
these, these images, pictures that are served up here, God cursing the man and the woman and the world in which they live, this extraordinary story of a, of a talking snake. Uh, <laughs> you know, what is the church on? Um, well, I want to come back to this text in uh, a moment or two, if I may, but um, one or two books just on our topic for this morning. And as, uh, if, you're, if you're visiting here or new, then you may not be aware, but in April we're just um, going through a little mini-series of questions, if you like, questions that frequently crop up, people have, uh, maybe questions that they want to ask God, prove that you exist. Um, what about all the other religions? Um, what about all the evidence that has been uh, uh, unearthed via scientific research? Has that not done something to disprove your existence, God? Um, and this morning you'll see, if you, if, if from the order of service, on these little cards are at the back and you can use as an invite for others. How can a loving God allow suffering in the world? Um, just a few books uh, that I found very useful, and you may well find useful. Let me recommend them to you. C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, uh, a sort of modern classic on the topic of suffering. Philip Yancey, a popular writer. He's written um, The Jesus I Never Knew. And uh, this book, Where is God When It Hurts? And then finally by um, Bishop James Jones, who's the Bishop of Liverpool. Why do people suffer? And indeed on the back is this question. If God is all-powerful and also all-loving, why does he allow so much suffering? And when we run the Alpha Course, um, uh, which is an opportunity for people to explore the Christian faith, and we sometimes in the small groups we ask them, if, if there was a question you could ask God, what question would it be? Just one question. And very often it's that question that is at the top of the pile. If God is all that Christians claim he is, he's a God of love and a God of power, then how come there is so much suffering and evil and pain and hurt in our world? Maybe it's a question that as you walk into church this morning, as you sit here this morning, it's actually very real and pertinent to you. I'm conscious, and I have been as I've been preparing this, that I know three people in our congregation who are suffering loss and bereavement right now. Uh, so it's a very real issue as we look at suffering uh, around the world. It's not just a, a kind of uh, head knowledge thing. This, this often touches our own experience, our own pain. And I want to attempt to begin an answer to that question this morning. But before I do that, let's bow our heads, ask God's help in tackling this issue as we look at his uh, scripture together. Father, as we begin to understand your role in our lives and in this world. Father, as we look at scripture together and attempt to see what you're revealing of yourself and of us and of your world in that. Father, as you seek to teach us by your word and by your spirit, please help us to be receptive, attentive. Your willing and humble servants and all this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Glenn Chambers was a New Yorker who'd set his heart on serving uh, with a charity in Ecuador. And as he left the airport, he realized he hadn't written his uh, mother a, a sort of goodwill, a goodbye farewell note. Um, and so he scrabbled around. He saw on the floor a discarded advertising um, card. 
And uh, in great big capitals on one side of this advert, it just had the, the letters, uh, um, the word Y, question mark. And he turned it over and used it as a postcard. And he wrote a note to his mum, stuck a stamp on it, and uh, put it in the box, boarded the plane, which exploded on impacts as it went straight into a 14,000-foot Colombian mountain. And it was several days after the news of his death that his mother received the card. And on the card, it simply said, why? That was the very question she was asking. Why? Why did that happen? It would be a heartless person who wouldn't go to some extent to share in the pain of that mother's suffering. It would be a heartless person here this morning, to be honest, who wouldn't share in some way, shape or form in the pain and suffering that we see around us in the world, in our country, in our community, in our own lives. Why is there illness? Why is there famine? Why is there the pain of relational breakdown and all that the shrapnel of that breakdown can cause in other people's lives? Why is there pain and suffering and evil? And all the while we bring them to mind and it triggers in our own hearts, our own sense of suffering and pain. And so the inevitable question, as I raised just a few minutes ago, if, if God is a God of love, and if God is a God of power who can act in love, then why does he allow so much suffering to go on? Now I want to say I haven't got the answer. If you're here this morning, great, you know, Tim's going to give me the answer to that, then I'm going to disappoint you right now. But I do want to, I want to do a number of things this morning, if I may. The first is I want to, uh, if you like, ask two questions of that question. I want to challenge a couple of assumptions that are made within that statement or question. And I want to see uh, what it is that God has done in answer to the cry of all of our hearts. So the first question, why is there so much suffering and hardship in the world? And um, while I can't provide the answer, maybe um, what I can do is offer one or two jigsaw pieces, which as we put them together, maybe help to piece together the, the picture. So that although we don't have the complete picture here and now on earth and the lives in which we live, maybe we have something of a picture forming that helps us to understand and see these issues from God's perspective. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Let's be just real and honest and upfront. So much suffering in the world today is caused by us. It's caused by human beings. Can we really blame God for those things that are really our culpability? When countries hoard food and other nations go hungry. When one government, for spurious reasons, wages war against another, usually for self-centered motives. When gangs terrorize a housing estate, or when adults sexually or physically abuse children so much so that they scar that individual for the rest of their lives. Suffering, yes, real, yes. But can we blame God when the cause was clearly human beings themselves? 
Why doesn't God do something about that? Well, the answer is, of course, that he could. God has the power to eradicate the cause. He could get rid of us. It's somewhat drastic. Alternatively, he could make us be loving and kind and compassionate all of the time. He could pre-program us. We could become automatons, robots, if you like, only able to do his will. So that the God who is powerful and good replicates that exactly in his creatures. But God is love, Christians claim. And at the heart of love is freedom. My wife Jo loves me and the reason why she loves me is because she is free to choose to love me. It is no love if I know that she has no choice in the matter. I don't receive that as love. That's an empty, aching loss. The love is because she is free to choose. Implicit in that love, of course, is risk. Implicit in her love for me is the very fact that she is free to go off with someone else. I have to accept that risk if I'm truly to live in that love. And God created the universe, he created the world. A gift which he invites us to share in and to live in. And implicit in that gift is the risk that we might choose alternative paths to living other than that which he has ordained for us. And so with free will, human beings all too often evidenced by the newspapers we read and the TV screens we watch, have abused that free will and turned in on themselves. So much of the suffering in the world today exists because we are the cause of it. Ah, comes the question, well, if God is loving and powerful, then why doesn't he stop the bad actions? When you sort of uh, honor the good, but when when there's obvious human evil, why doesn't he intervene to stop them? Why doesn't he, for example, step in and change the direction of that bullet as it speeds towards its victim? And in one sense, Christians would want to argue, yes, of course, God could. But what kind of world would we live in if he did that all the time, as he would be required to do? constantly intervening to change the laws of nature that he himself has set up to enable the universe to run in an ordered and coherent and beautiful fashion. But if he was constantly coming in to change and correct, to alter because of our evil human hearts. Let's use the analogy of a, of a game of tennis. Imagine you're having a game of tennis with a partner and uh, supposing uh, their serve isn't going too well on that day, and they keep on double faulting. You, you might decide, well, I'll, I'll let them have a few more serves to get a ball in so we can get a rally. Or, or supposing during a point they trip over, you might agree uh, to play the point again. You can bend the rules. But, but what if you got rid of the net? You didn't have any of the sidelines or the baseline. What if every single point the rules changed? You'd cease to have a game that's recognizably tennis you wouldn't know where you stood. It would be chaos. And in much the same way, God has set up, created an ordered universe. And it would undermine his creativity if he were constantly coming in to intervene on our behalves. So to the first question, these jigsaw pieces 
why is there so much suffering? Well, human cause, human evil. Okay, second question. Someone might say, well, what about all the suffering that isn't down to human cause? What about the widespread suffering that we hear about from time to time through, well, like the tsunami or famine or earthquakes? Can't argue that human beings caused that earthquake that meant that hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people suffered injury or death. How can we account for that? Well, I'd want to affirm that whilst um, I'm not sure that human beings can be held accountable for the cause of a famine or of an earthquake or the tsunami that occurred a few years ago. But undoubtedly, humans have caused the subsequent suffering. Take, for example, um, earthquakes. In uh, 1906, there was some extensive research done into the monitoring of the devastation caused by earthquakes. Dr. T. Nakamura was sent by the Japanese government to San Francisco after an earthquake there on, on, on the famous sort of fault line to assess why there'd been such colossal loss of life. And in his report, there was this devastating line. He says, dishonest mortar was responsible for nearly all the earthquake damage. In other words, the damage could have been drastically reduced by decent reinforced buildings. And yet, the Times reported 29 years later after an earthquake in Pakistan. The appalling destruction in Quetta city in Pakistan is traced to the poor constructional quality of the buildings. Such earthquake-proof buildings No, there we are. Oh, there we are. I don't know what happened there. Mind you, uh, can I just say my light's gone red? Does that mean I'm about to blow up? <laughs> Steve, is someone? There we are. Do you? I'm on. How are we doing? Yes? Ah, fantastic. Sermons that go on and on. Why doesn't God do something about that? In other words, there was human culpability. Uh, we could have prevented so much suffering in the earthquakes over the last century. The tsunami, we, we knew about tectonic plates. We knew about how they fell, but we just... The governments did not want to spend the money on the necessary um, uh, uh, equipment to alert us to the fact when one was about to take place. It, the great famine in Ethiopia in, uh, that first came to our attention in the mid-1980s, relief agencies had warned governments around the world that that was about to take place years before it, it evidenced. And indeed, uh, the Ethiopian government was spending millions on lavish apartments in Addis Ababa, while their own countrymen were starving. 
So whilst we may not cause these disasters around the world, very often we contribute to the suffering as a result. We say, well, yeah, but that was them out there. But I wonder, actually, whether there's any of us here, have we ever refused help to someone who we've known has been in need? Have we withheld the goods that we know we ought to do in order to help and alleviate the hardship, discomfort, pain or suffering of someone else? Human culpability. But now these two assumptions that I want to question in, in the sort of question uh, that we've had from the top of our, uh, our talk this morning. Uh, if God is loving, if God is powerful, then why does he allow so much suffering? And the first assumption that I think can be implicit, particularly in, in some of the statements that are, are made, some of the observations that are made about the world in which we live, the first assumption is that the world as it is now is how God intended it to be. As I came across this account of the uh, eulogy, the tribute to Reggie Perrin um, in uh, that famous BBC One series in the 70s, and I think repeated uh, in the 80s. And uh, this is an excerpt from his funeral. The manner of his death may seem to those who knew him well to be a curiously appropriate full stop at the end of the bizarre sentence that was his life, intoned the vicar of Goffley, who hadn't known Reggie at all. He was struck by a falling billboard advertising the Royal and General Accident Insurance Company. Ironically, this was the very company with which he was insured. God moves in a mysterious way. Absolutely right, whispered Reggie's old boss, CJ, who was drawn to cliches like lambs to the slaughter. I didn't get where I am today without knowing that God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way, a line taken from a William Cooper hymn, uh, but taken out of context. And it's often used to me, oh, God moves in a mysterious way. In other words, things happen, bad things happen that cause suffering or hardship. And that's just the way it is. And implicit in that, God obviously intends it to be like that. That's the first assumption. And the second actually moves on from that. God intends the world as it is. That's the mistaken assumption. God intends the world as it is. And, um, and therefore... If he's powerful, he can't be loving. How can he inflict murderers and rapists amongst us, child abusers, if he's good? If he's powerful and he allows these things to happen, he must be evil. C.S. Lewis, again, writing in A Grief Observed, uh, uh, these uh, notes and annotations of his wife, Joy, as she went through the sort of suffering of, of cancer and eventually her death. And as he writes, he, he says he was really tempted to come to this conclusion that God is not loving. That it, it, almost this is your God. Stop deceiving yourself. He is capricious and uh, he loves, he, he derives some kind of strange satisfaction from this suffering that we witness. And that's where I want to come, uh, and not before time you may say, to Genesis chapter 3. Because here we have the account of mankind's fall from God's grace. God's grace is set out in chapters 1 and 2. This wonderful creation, this gift of the world which he gives us. Look at uh, verse 31 of chapter 1 on the left hand page. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Creation is good. Look across at verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The goodness of creation and the freedom within it. We can enjoy all that God has made. But there's this one prohibition, and as we've rehearsed from the reading, the snake, the the serpent in the form of a snake, tempts the woman. In verse 4, she falls for the lie that they will not die as God warned they would. And so verse 6 of chapter 3, when she sees the fruit tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she ate some, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate it. The eyes of both were opened. They realized they were naked in a sort of soul, whole sense. And so they hide from one another and they hide from God. Genesis, indeed the whole of scripture, but Genesis is is founded in relationship. The three in one God as an overspill of their love creates this world. And, And men and women invited to share in relationship with God in stewarding the world. And as they disobey God, they break relationship with him. They they fall from his grace. So they have to hide from him, verse 10. And verses 12 and 13, do you see how each of the men and the women, they uh, shift, attempt to shift the blame. The woman put, um, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the woman said, the snake deceived me. The man blames the woman and the woman blames the snake. And as they say, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Theological disruption, us and God. Sociological disruption, men and women. Psychological disruption, this this sense of shame as as they hide from themselves and recognize their nakedness and need to cover themselves. And so the consequence of this, pronounced in the form of this curse, we see that the ground will now resist cultivation. Relationships will descend into power plays and dependency. Even the joy of childbirth is tempered by the pains of labor. The doctrine of the fall and its implications coming within the context of creation is important for us when we look at this whole issue of pain and suffering and hardship because it, it, it comes to question and challenge these two assumptions. The first assumption, the world is, is as it's meant to be. This is it. This is how God intends it. And the, the doctrine of the fall says no. Evil and suffering and sin and disobedience have come as intruders into God's perfect world. They've ruined the world, forever broken it. Well, not forever, but for the time being, it is broken and fractured. It is a a distorted reality that we see today. It was not how God intended the world to be. And the second assumption, that God is not good, but we see the fall stands in contradiction to creation. God sees that everything is good. He longs for for a, a, a wonderful, healthy, whole, creation and this disruption is not as he intended it one commentator Derek Kidner puts it like this futility was not the first word in our world and it does not have to be the last 
Now, um, I'm running short of time, I see, and uh, I could say much about, just following on from C.S. Lewis's book on pain, on, on the experience of pain, where I guess suffering is most personalized for us. Um, actually, pain, although it can be a, 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 uh, seen as a negative thing, and a difficult thing, and a troubling thing, and often when we are in pain, be it physical pain, or social, emotional pain, or psychological pain, often we can equate that with suffering and come to resent it. And maybe we come to resent God at the same time. But pain can actually be a good thing. It can be, if you like, the early alarm system within our bodies. If it wasn't for pain, how would we know if we had toothache? Or if we were standing too near to uh, the heat of a fire or a cooker or something. Pain as a sensation can warn us. And although we need to handle this concept carefully amongst ourselves, God can use pain for his purposes and for his good. C.S. Lewis, again, uh, in The Problem of Pain, he famously says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. And God can use pain perhaps in a spiritual sense, this sense of loneliness in this huge cosmos in which we live, an ache, an awareness that all is not complete in us, God can use that to draw us to himself. God can also use pain to build and develop character in us. Some of the New Testament writers uh, encourage the Christians to consider it joy when you face trials or suffering when you face hardship, because you know that God is building character in you. Joe and I have got uh, good friends who are around about our age, relatively young then, and uh, for about 15 years, uh, Tanya, the, the, the um, girl that we know, has been suffering with the possibility, the, the sort of threat of uh, a recurrence of Hodgkinson's disease. She first contracted it when she was in her early 20s. Uh, and has had several operations, lots of chemotherapy, and just when we think she's out of remission, in some way it comes back. They've got three beautiful children, and they've constantly lived with that threat hanging over them. And often she's been in pain and discomfort. And yet they would say that through that pain and that suffering, they have come to know the grace and the provision of God in ways that they could not have imagined if they hadn't walked down that path. Now, I'm not saying that God deliberately intends pain in order to develop or mature us, but I'm simply saying that he can allow for that. So two questions, the suffering and who's the cause of it. The assumptions that the doctrine of the fall seeks to undermine and to challenge the assumption that this is how it's meant to be the assumption that God is not good the fool wants to say the doctrine of the fool wants to say no this is not how it's meant to be the doctrine of the fool says God is good but how does that sustain us now as we share in the pain of others as we maybe experience our own pain and suffering how are we comforted by God imagine there's a, a, a car accident a scene where Someone has been knocked over and they lie in the road with a broken leg. 
two possible positions. Someone who could have witnessed that from the balcony of their first floor flat, and they make observations. Oh, my goodness, that car has knocked over that person. That person has a broken leg. They must be in severe pain. They'll be in pain because the, the broken femur is uh, pressing against their femoral nerve, and uh, it's going through their neurological system up into the receivers in their brain, which is telling them they're in extreme agony. First scenario. Or the second scenario is that someone who sees the accident races down with a little dial of morphine and some bandages or a makeshift splint, and they inject the morphine in the patient to reduce the pain, and they make a makeshift splint while ringing the emergency services so that they can quickly be got to hospital and the leg can be mended. Which of those two scenarios is the preferable one? Is it the detached observer or the active participant? And Christians want to rejoice in this fact that God is not a distant, aloof God. He doesn't meekly stand by as people complain, where's God when all this suffering is going on? Oh, yes, isn't it awful? God has acted in history. He stepped into our world and into our pain and into our suffering. Jesus. Not just to experience it, but to begin to reverse it. As he stands on the bow of the boat, he says to the waves, be still, he said, be calm. He says to the wind, be still. He demonstrates his authority and power and goodness over the created order. He heals blind eyes. He unstops deaf ears. He brings reconciliation and healing into relationships. Lazarus. A modern translation of Jesus' reaction when he goes to the grave of his friend who has died is he snorts out of indignation. His spirit is troubled and angered. This is not right. This is not how it's meant to be. Death has come in and impacted all these around. There's tears and there's sorrow and there's suffering. And Jesus says this is not right. And as a foretaste of what one day all of us will experience in Christ... He raises Lazarus, an indication of what is to come. New life, healing and wholeness. A new heaven and a new earth. The work begun on the cross will be consummated at the end of all times. John sees it in his picture in Revelation chapter 21. No more death, no more pain, no more crying. No more suffering. The old order has passed away. Jesus ushers in the new. That's the hope that Christians hold on to. Hope in the Christian sense, not in the contemporary sense. We say hope as in, I hope it won't rain, meaning it probably will. It's such an anemic, powerless word. In our context, hope is real to Christians. It's real in scripture. Jesus has come and he will come again. He will take up all the brokenness and the suffering and the healing and the hurt. And make it new. That's the hope in which we stand now. We don't fully experience it. We recognize there's suffering and there's hardship and there's pain. But in Christ, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we're sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in his name.
Not death, nor famine, nor sword, nor nakedness, nor all those things that Paul lists in Romans 8. Intense suffering and hardship like I know a number of you are going through right now. It's desolate. It's agonizing. It's lonely. But by faith we dare to believe that God has been there. He stands with us in Jesus. Somehow he empowers us by his spirit to put one step in front of another and continue to walk in his name. One day it will all be wiped away. We look forward to that day. It sustains us in the presence now. Well, let's just take a moment or two of quiet. I'm conscious it's so easy to speak of these things. Lord, forgive me if I've been uh, glib in any way. It's not my intention. It is simply that for those of us here and now, in the white heat of pain and suffering, where we, it is our personal experience, Father, I pray that you would now minister to us by your Spirit. Make real to us the life and the death and resurrection the rule and the reign and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make real, Lord, your comfort and provision, your strength and determination. Continue your work of character building in us, we pray. Father, for those known to us, maybe family or friend or colleague, themselves caught up in suffering or troubled by the world in which we live, may we be those who have words of wisdom, insight, comfort, tact, and sensitivity. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.